Leading Ladies, a concert in celebration of Women's History Month featuring Kelsey Ballerini, Megan Trainer, L. King, Christina Perry. At the King's Theater in Brooklyn, New York on Wednesday, March 20th. Tickets are on sale now. You don't want to miss this amazing night of music dedicated to uplifting women's voices. With Kelsey Ballerini, Megan Trainer, L. King, and Christina Perry. Odyssey's Leading Ladies presented by Olay Body. Buy your tickets now at kingstheater.com. This is Podman Rush with DJ Boone covering everything Boston Bruins and the NHL. Podman Rush on WEEI.com. 718s, 202s, I send small cities and states IOUs. Welcome to Podman Rush. I am DJ Bean, and I'm ready to talk some playoff hockey here with my favorite guest that we have on this here Podman Rush podcast, who's actually the first ever guest. Uh, he was he did the first one a year and a half ago or whenever we started this thing. It's Greg Wyshynski of Yahoo Sports, known of course for uh, his famous Puck Daddy blog and his record-breaking Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast. Greg, what's happening? I forgot it was the uh, on the maiden voyage of, you, the, of the podcast. That's, that is a fun fact. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you were on the first one, and your answer. I gave you a nice long intro, and you there was like a pregnant pause, and then you said. You named it Podman Rush, and then we talked about that for like twenty to forty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> good times. Yeah, good times. Um, all right, so we're heading to the playoffs now. Looking ahead, um, a common narrative in Boston is that if any team could eliminate the Bruins in the first round, it's the Red Wings. Which begs the question: Do you think any team could eliminate the Bruins in the first round? I personally don't. What do you think? I, I don't believe so either, although I think that the chess match between uh, uh, Claude Julien and, and Mike Babcock could be a real fascinating one to watch. I mean, there's no question that what the Red Wings have been able to accomplish despite all these injuries is remarkable. Uh, but, but overall, I mean, there are three teams in the playoffs that are built to win in the playoffs. It's the Bruins, the Blackhawks, and the L.A. Kings. And uh, I just think that the, the Bruins are the better team. I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in the Eastern Conference, as I look at it, I don't see really any series that that isn't at least winnable for the Bruins. I think that some teams might maybe slow them down a bit. Uh, Montreal is obviously perceived to be something of a speed bump. Uh, I think the Penguins, I think the Bruins could steamroll right over them again. Uh, but, I mean, D- Detroit's a tough matchup as they look at them because they see speed, they see puck possession, they see every person that's ever been born in Sweden. Uh, but I think that what people kind of leave out, and it makes me sound like such a Bruins homer, but I think that just from having covered this team, I'm conditioned to think very highly of them. I think that people are kind of miss out on looking at how Bruins are, the Bruins are perceived as a potential opponent because I think that, I mean, again, you see puck possession with them, but you see a bigger, deeper offensive team. You see Zidane Chara, you see Tuka Rask. I think that's the, that the things that worry you if you're facing the Bruins are far more intimidating than the things that worry you if you're facing the Red Wings. For sure. And, and it, it's, you, that's not to speak to the physicality, too, that the Bruins bring to the table. And, and the Red Wings, under Mike Babcock for years, have never been you know, the, uh, a team that necessarily responds to that level of physicality. I mean, outside of uh, Nicholas Cronwall uh, throwing one of those fabulous hip checks during the game. Uh, so there's a lot to the Bruins' advantage, and, and, you know, I think depth's one of those things. The, the Red Wings really have been able to get by with a cast of characters that were sort of AHL transfers, and, and uh, it, you know, full credit to Mike Babcock for shepherding that 
squad into the playoffs. But uh, the depth on the Bruins is, is NHL depth. It's NHL playoff depth. It's people that have been through the wars in a way that some of these young uh, Red Wings players haven't necessarily. And I think that's a, direct, a distinct advantage for the Bruins in the series. Yeah, I mean, as a national guy, I'm sure you've seen more of Louis Erickson than a lot of us have. Uh, as we enter the playoffs right now, um, Louis Erickson is the team's third-line right wing, which I think that when you looked at the Bruins early on in the season, you thought, all right, their top six is definitely better because Sagan's gone, Erickson's in, and then who the hell knows what the third line's going to look like. It's going to be another year like they had last season where, as you were to, to borrow a, a phrase, it was a cast of characters in the third line, and they never quite got it figured out. Now they've got Louis Erickson on that third line because Riley Smith's been good enough, okay enough, whatever you want to call it, to play on that second line, and you're talking about Carl Soderberg between Chris Kelly if he's healthy and Louis Erickson. Uh, just how much how much of an added dimension is that to have a strong third line in the postseason? Because so many teams, even the Bruins last year, uh, go into these postseasons just not knowing quite what to expect from their third line. Right, and especially when you know more to the point, the the top lines are in such danger in the playoffs because you have teams like the Bruins, for example, that have this amazing ability to play shutdown hockey and uh, take out the top line of other teams. So secondary scoring is usually the determining factor who wins series and eventually who wins the cup, as, as we saw last postseason. You know, the performances that uh, that the Blackhawks got out of guys like Andrew Shaw, for example, and players like that, uh, where sometimes they bowl and uh, don't want to bring up bad memories. But, uh, you know, guys like that can, can sometimes be the determining factor. And uh, and I think that uh, going three deep like the Bruins do is is, is puts them at a serious advantage in these playoffs. Yeah, Peter Shirelli kind of hinted at it yesterday that I mean it wouldn't be a surprise to see the uh, the top sixes on both teams just kind of be a wash. Uh, but as I look at it, two names that or yeah, two, one name on each side that I think fascinates me with this matchup is obviously Pavel Datsuk with the Red Wings. But David Krejci, who with each good postseason, people compare him more and more to Pavel Datsuk. Uh, I don't think it would be at all without outside the realm of possibility for Krejci to do what he does in the postseason and really outperform a guy like Datsuk. So, I mean, the, the possibility exists that the Bruins could also win that top six battle. They could, they could for sure, and and you know, when you talk about the uh, the comparison between uh, Krejci and uh, and and uh, uh, Datsuk, I mean, I think it's also speaking to, and I know this is a word that is sort of a dirty word in this uh, analytics world that we live in, but he's clutch. I mean, his, he's got this ability to really turn up the offensive game in the playoffs, score points in bunches, be a difference maker in games. And, uh, and and that's an asset that, that you can't ignore when you're matching up against other top lines like the Datsuk line. It's, it's, uh, it's been a marvel to watch the way he elevates his game uh, in the postseason, and I don't think there's any reason to think it will continue. Speaking of clutch, one thing that people, I think, are kind of sleeping on, they, they look at the Bruins' first line and they see how consistent it was this season with Krejci, Lucic, and Aginla, and they say, all right, going into the postseason, they have a better first line than they've had in years past. I'm hesitant to say that because... Nathan Horton, in the postseason at least, really exclusively in the postseason, was a dominant player, and he and to to use your word again, he was a he was a clutch player. He scored. It seemed like if the Bruins played five games in the 2011 postseason, he would somehow have like 13 game-winning goals. That's just the way that Horton was. He would snooze during the regular season, and he would play out of his mind in the postseason. Uh, 
there might be actually there actually might end up being a drop off from uh, Horton to Jerome McGinley, but you would think that McGinley should have the hunger, obviously, to win his first Stanley Cup. Um, what have your impressions been of the season that Jerome McGinley has been able to have with the Bruins, and do you expect him to kind of pick up Nathan Horton's tradition? Well, first off, it warms my heart that there you know that there is a guy like Nathan Horton in this world who has middling results during the regular season and blows up in the postseason because I was a longtime Claude Lemieux fan growing <laughs> up in Jersey who, who would basically do the same thing. Right, yeah. Uh, Aguilas been great, and I, and I, and I think the, the thing that uh, is sort of life-affirming was that it wasn't necessarily Aguila who was falling apart towards the end with, with Calgary and then with Pittsburgh last year. It was just him not fitting in with what the teams were asking him to do, and he comes to Boston, he fits the system, which isn't always an easy thing for players. I mean, as we've the reason why Tyler Sagan is right. playing in Dallas. But uh, he, he fits the system. He's done everything they've asked, and, uh, and I think he's just added uh, not only that, that element of veteran scoring, but also that uh, ability for them to send a guy like Erickson or send a guy like Soderbergh down to the third line and, and really bring a lot of uh, balance to that lineup. Now, my contention, uh, defensively at least, I mean, the biggest concern, I guess, uh, when people look at the Bruins is their defense beyond Zdeno Chara. And I think that it's a somewhat valid point. I, I'm i president of the Matt Barkowski fan club, but I see people's concerns about Dougie Hamilton being a top-pairing defenseman. Um, but what I think people miss, I mean, I, I think that, at least in Boston, I kind of only know what people are saying in Boston, I think that they only apply their fears to one side. And I think that while Dougie Hamilton might be able to be exposed, I think that you look at the Red Wings' young D, and I think they've got just as big of concerns, uh, if not greater, except they don't have a Zidane Chara. So, I mean, how do you see the defensive picture playing out where I think that Brendan Smith is just as easily exploitable than or as any of these young defensemen for the Bruins? Yeah, and that's why it could end up being a wash. I mean, you know, it's having watched Dougie Hamilton play when he has played this year, I mean, it's, it's clear that he's still a young player who's going to make mistakes, and, and you can anticipate those mistakes happening in the postseason and probably being magnified in the postseason. But by, by no means do I think that the uh, that the blue line is going to be the undoing of the Boston Bruins in the playoffs. I mean, I, I think, uh, especially with, with Chara, uh, Chara's ice time probably increasing for the postseason and and, uh, and hopefully the, the entire core getting healthier going forward, uh, I'm pretty confident that's going to be an advantage in, in most series of the Bruins that enter into this postseason. Maybe, maybe I'm getting carried away, but do you think that we learned last postseason about this Bruins team that Chara, not only we've all known forever that he's the straw that stirs the, the drink with no disrespect uh, intended towards Patrice Bergeron, but when we saw him break down in the Stanley Cup Finals against the uh, the Blackhawks, and again, no disrespect to the Blackhawks because they were clearly the better team and they deserved to win that series, but I mean, we learned that when Chara breaks down, so too do the Bruins, and it happened fast and furious before our eyes. He's playing in front now on the power play. He played in the point for, for years. And I can't help but think that maybe earlier in this postseason, we're going to start to see that creeping up where maybe Chara looks a little less of himself just because he's playing such a physically taxing role. Uh, if that happens again, do you see the same outcome where the Bruins just fall apart if Chara isn't at 100%? Oh, totally. I mean... The moment the element of fear is no longer there about having Chara out there as a shutdown player, then the, the, the entire perception of the Bruins changes. And I mean, when, when he became a turnstile defensively, allowing players to skate around him in that, in that Stanley Cup final against Chicago, 
it just changed the entire perception of things and, and shifted the momentum and, and, and really kind of, I think, bolstered uh, the offense for the, for the Blackhawks in ways that were unanticipated. So, the, the, But, but I, I guess the silver lining in that is that at the time, there were a lot of people questioning whether or not Chara was done, uh, but then it turned out to be an injury. And, and so that was a little bit comforting in the sense that you can go back to this postseason and not believe that this is now a player that can't go four rounds deep. Uh, so you you still tend to believe that he's going to be a, a, a positive factor for the Bruins going forward so long as the health is there. You just nailed it with uh, as far as the element of fear thing goes. I don't know if you remember this, but after game after game four, yeah, when the Blackhawks beat the Bruins, Taves, who isn't the most colorful guy, said in his press conference, this wasn't just to one person, he said, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, but fuck that guy. We're gonna take that guy down. What he actually <laughs> said, what he actually said was, "We know that we can beat this guy, and we're not scared of him anymore." Something like that. And it was, in hindsight, that was their realization that something's wrong with this guy, and we don't need to only play on one side of the ice against him. We can go after him, and we can beat him. I think you just nailed it as far as the uh, the element of fear thing goes. Um, now, goaltending-wise, I don't think that there are any questions about Tuka Rask, but with Howard's season and just the fact that he's had some very good years in the NHL, but now is 30 years old, hasn't been out of the second round, I'm kind of wondering where he stands as an opponent in that, are the Bruins going up against a guy who still feels he has something to prove in the postseason, or just given that it was such an up-and-down season— is this maybe a slightly more challenging version of what they faced last season with the Penguins where uh, their goaltending situation was so inconsistent? Oh, no, no. Jimmy Howard is, is a, to me, a, a steadier hand at the wheel than Marc-Andre Fleury is. I mean, he's, Most he's people just, are. He's a dependable guy. I don't know necessarily if he's a guy who can go in and steal a series against, against Boston because that might, this might be the thing that needs to happen in order to beat the Bruins the way they're currently playing and constructed. Uh, but he's not a liability. He kind of plays within himself. He plays within the system. He does what's, what's necessary to win. And uh, and I, I don't think he'll end up being a liability. He's, he's not going to give anybody a free pass. And, and if he does, I mean, you know, got system behind him is not a bad option for them either. So I, I, goaltending, to me, won't be the uh, the Red Wings undoing in the series. Now, on the, on the subject of Chara, we were talking about him earlier. You, you had a really good piece and maybe just the best headline, um, just basically saying that, for some reason, there exists a camp um, of people who have votes for the Norris that are inclined to vote for anyone but Chara because they want to say, and as you mentioned earlier, that maybe he's lost a step or that he's the beneficiary of this system. Uh, what are your thoughts on Chara's Norris candidacy? I mean, I know the, I know, I saw the numbers that you included in your piece, and I, I'm going to give. Chara, my top, uh, my top vote. I'm going to go Doughty two, and uh, I have the rest of my ballot somewhere, but uh, not in front of me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, just what do you make of Chara's Norris candidacy and the fact that I think we're in agreement that he won't win? Well, I, I voted him first last night. I, I think he won't win just because of the number of people I've seen putting over um, uh, Duncan Keith this season as as being their top selection, and that's not a bad top selection. Like I don't. I don't think it's a case where people are necessarily getting it completely wrong with Keith, but I will say that you know one of the considerations that you have to have in choosing who wins the the Norris Trophy is who they playing against. And I'm sorry, like yeah, Keith's uh, a second pairing guy. Shea Weber, Drew Doughty, 
these are all guys that draw the toughest defensive assignments for their team. Right. And at the same time, they're also putting up good offensive numbers on the other side of the ice. Duncan Keith is putting up the second-best offensive numbers in the NHL behind Eric Carlson, but he's doing so not getting the toughest assignments for his team. The toughest assignments of the Blackhawks go to Johnny Oduya and Nicholas Jarmelson. So the idea that, that, that the Keith should get the top defenseman in the league despite not even being the top defensive defenseman or, or you know, guy with defensive responsibilities, we should say, on his own team, I think is a little, a little nonsensical. But, you know, the case for Chara Strong, I, I did my ballot last night. I, I voted him uh, I voted him first. Um, I think he's very deserving of it. And and, uh, and the, the whole point of the whole anybody but Chara thing, I think it comes down to two factors. One, we're always looking for a new face. We're always looking to give it to somebody other than the guy who might be the obvious choice. And in most seasons, Chara is the obvious choice. And then the other thing is, there's this idea that because he's so big and because he was so physically gifted to begin with, that that should somehow be held against him. It's like, oh, how easy is it to be a, a guy who's 25 feet tall and has that wingspan and all this other stuff? I'm like, that's really what we're going to do? Do you know <laughs> you how know, long it like, took that guy to gonna, learn how to skate hold, right, though? We're because... hold it against this guy for having physical gifts that other players don't have? It's, just, it's nonsense, but I think it's part of the equation for people who try to find someone else to vote for. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that what people overlook there is that that body was not made to skate, though, you know? And and that he's he's kind of fashioned himself into something resembling a hockey player. I think that people sleep on that. I mean, they say how physically gifted he is, but it's not like he's, like, I don't know, it's not like he's Jeff Skinner who, like, is just so graceful on the ice. He, I mean, I've talked to, to people who came up with him through the minors, and they said that they would watch that guy, and they were like, ugh, yeesh. And it took him a while to become what he is right now. So it's, I mean, it's been much more of a struggle to get to where he is, which is the most difficult player in the NHL to play against in my book. And I think that people kind of snooze on that. Yeah, looking at my ballot now, I have uh, I have Keith uh, fourth. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that what helps Keith, though, and it's unfair, is that people say, yeah, he's not drawing the toughest defensive assignments, but he's done it in the past. Or like that's the perception they have of Keith. They know that he can uh, play that type of role, but that's not the role that he's playing this season. Yeah, and I, and I think overall the, the the Norris by far is the is the award that is the most contentious, the closest. Um, I don't think you could go wrong. Like for example, I'm I'm sure once my ballot's published, because uh, we'll publish it, I'm sure there's going to be a an outcry because Drew Doughty's not in my top five, but like P6, there's there's five other guys that I wanted to give the rub to in, on my ballot other than Drew Doughty, even though he's had an amazing season and has driven possession for the Kings and all these other great things. So it's very evenly matched. I mean, you go Doughty, Chara, Keith, Petrangelo, you can make the case of Carlson. Uh, I have Mark Edward Vlasic in my top five. And the other guy that I have in my top five, which might not be in everybody's top five, is Mark Giordano from the Calgary Flames, who has the season he's had based on the talent he's played with and, and based on what that team does when he's not on the ice is remarkable. It's just that he didn't have a larger body of work because of his injury. So it's an award that I think maybe goes seven or eight deep this year, and, and I'm, I'll be interested to see exactly how many guys get love at the end of the season. Yeah, and Giordano, I was actually just talking to Scott McLaughlin, who writes for us, and he, he's he's the balls, and he was, uh, and I was showing him my ballot and the guys I was thinking of, and he was he really made a case for for him relatively strong for the things that 
for, for the reasons you just mentioned. Um, you mentioned that you will be publishing your ballot. I'll be doing the same. Uh, do, do you do that every year? I do, yeah, and and I I especially agree though with the um, with the, the take that the Professional Hockey Writers Association has, which is that you know encourage all the writers to share their ballots and hopefully everybody does because I think it makes the debate more interesting and if you make these picks you should be able to justify them right exactly and uh, there is a certain element of check and balance when you release your ballot to the public, but I don't like the idea of mandating it. Um, you know I. I do believe that it's a slippery slope if, if these ballots are all made, made public. Maybe in certain situations people aren't comfortable releasing it. Um, the last thing I ever want is for voting to be tainted or influenced it's, in any way. And it totally and, would be and, if it's mandated. I'm publishing mine for sure, but, I, but you know, go ahead. Yeah, I think it would be if it's mandated because, you know... I, I hate to, to climb into the minds of, of other writers, right? But I think we, you and I both know people that might vote a certain way. Yeah. Whether it's to elicit a reaction from readership or to make nice with management with a, for a team or to make nice with an athlete that they cover. And there's tremendous pressure to do that in, in, in certain situations. And the last thing I want is for that to, to happen and, and, and then for the, there to be any temptation for it to happen. And I think that if you mandate the release of these ballots, you really do open up the possibility that there's going to be politics involved. If you give people the chance to be anonymous and do it on their own or, or maybe only release their winners rather than the top five for each award, then I think you, you kind of can, can ensure that the process stays uh, as, as, uh, as, with as much integrity as you can possibly give something like this. Yeah, and I mean, this makes me sound like a bitch boy, but like I, I also <laughs> think that, that part of it is some writers might not want to hurt someone's feelings, you know, like I, for example, I'm voting Chara one for Norris, knowing him and how seriously he takes everything and his never ending desire to be the best at everything he ever does. I like, what if I were voting? What what if I left Chara off my ballot, which I'm sure some people will do. Like I, I would feel bad, like, basically rubbing that in his face, you know? And 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 he would I'm sure see like with the, with the Boston voters and how they voted if it were mandated and I wouldn't necessarily be concerned that oh this guy's never going to talk to me again or whatever, but I mean I'd feel bad that these people would know that the people they deal with every day think that they're not as good or think that they suck or whatever. Um yeah, I mean uh while we're at and, it and essentially what it comes down to is by releasing the ballots, you know, then 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 or mandating release of the ballots, now all of a sudden you're going to have witch hunts. And as fun as it is to see Deadspin go after that one person who votes Juan Samuel for the Hall of Fame right. in baseball, it does become a distraction and it does become sort of a character assassination thing if the entire world is coming down on the guy who put Sidney Crosby third for the heart. I mean, right. does anyone really need that in their life? It's just. It's just an award ballot vote, right? And, and, and I don't know. It, uh, again, the, the, I'm all for transparency at the end of the day in every, in every facet of our business. But I also think that it's contingent upon somebody to, to you know, do want to do it and want to go through that hassle and, and spend time defending their vote if they want to. I choose to. I always, always have, but I'm never going to tell someone that they have to if they don't want to. Yeah, that's a perfect take. And I was, uh, we had Chan Gentili on 
last week, and he was saying, and it's kind of the same thing with me, like just how terrified he is when he's voting of of screwing up. Like you quadruple check everything a thousand times. Um, and I mean, speaking of witch hunt, like very playfully, I've been on a witch hunt the last few years to find out who the Christ keeps giving Tyler Sagan Selkie votes. And <laughs> like, so if it were mandated, I would love that. Although I would feel bad for that person because people would go to town on them. Maybe rightfully so, but... Yeah, uh, but the thing about it, me, me, you, and Gentilly are all kind of like new voters, right? Like, right. I've only had the vote for a few years. Yeah. Uh, this is like the sixth year Puck Daddy's been around. I probably had the vote for four of those six years, I'd say. Yeah, I think I'm the same we way. We all take it real seriously. And, and you know, our, our, our business is changing in, in a way where, you know, I think the Professional Hockey Writers Association is probably going to morph into something different eventually. It wouldn't surprise me if... If uh, because of the NHL influence, there was going to be, you know, guys that are on the TV side that might start getting involved with some of the, the awards that are simply print writer awards at this moment. And I'm sure at some point there's going to be a parsing of the roles, and there's going to be guys that, that have a vote now that don't vote subsequently or something like that. And I just believe that, like me and you and, and Sean and, and other people that for this that are new to this process in a, in a, in a general and relative sense, kind of too, do take it more seriously. We kind of aren't the guys that put Ovechkin as a left wing last season. We kind of aren't the people that, that are voting for the Selkie based on face-off percentage and plus-minus. Like, I really think that we put some thought into it, and, and, um, and, and, I, and, I, and it's completely the reverse from what you read from some people that are like, well, you invite more people into the process than you water down the process, and people who don't oh, right. have expertise. You know, it's what Al Scratch and whatever the hell his name is, that old fossil that used to be on Hockey Night. Right. That, you know, he's like, oh, you, you invite people that don't have uh, the expertise into the process. If no, you ever played you invite the game. people that actually give a damn about yeah. this privilege that you have and that actually spend the extra time and go the extra mile to make sure what they put down uh, on their ballot is the right name and is the right guy because otherwise, um, you know, you can't justify it and, and otherwise you just come off as being some out of touch boob who thinks who doesn't know the biggest story of last season, which is the MVP of the league getting his position switched. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I was all for when they cut down the votes. I was like, brava. Like I thought. But the thing is, I just assumed that it was gonna that when they cut down the votes, I mean, they were taking away the, the uh, the Ovechkin left wing voters and the uh, and the Sagan Selkie voters. But you don't know who actually loses their votes there. And two guys, at least in the Boston chapter, the go to the PHWA website. It is offensive how many people are in the Boston chapter. And I, I'm not acting <laughs> high and mighty. If they want to chop a bunch of them and included me in the process, then that's fine. But there is like a thousand people, some of who I've heard, uh, some of whom I've I've heard of, and I'm at the games. Like <laughs> so. I don't know where these secret voters would be, but um, but I mean, some real some one new newer voter, quote unquote, in uh, Dan Kagan from the Metro West Daily News is like just the type of guy you were talking about, like that really, really takes it seriously and is just legitimately qualified to vote. Very thoughtful in determining who should get all these things. And that guy ends up losing a vote in the process. So, I mean... Yeah, it's, a sh- it's a shame. And, and hopefully there is a rotation so that if you lose it one year, you don't get it the next. Or do I mean, what they do in, the in baseball, where, where, like, I'll have Lady Bing and Norris, you have, uh, you have Hart and Calder and Selkie or whatever, and everyone's at least voting on something during the year. 
I don't know. I, I like the idea of everybody having a shot at the full ballot. I okay. know that's one of the ideas floating around is that everybody kind of have to spe- has a specialization on certain awards and everything. I, I just, I don't know. I would let everybody vote and everybody, you know, have their ballot. I wouldn't parse the roles. I'd have the entire body vote on the awards. And you know what? Sometimes you get it right and sometimes things go awry. And, and the bottom line is that the people that do make it go awry and make interesting votes and, and set the whole thing off in a different direction should be able to justify why they did it. Um, but, you know, that then speaks to whether or not we should have... I mean, this is the counter-argument on the release of ballots is, well, then, you know, should we have public shaming to make sure that right. the Ovechkin left-wing people don't do that again? And, and there is obviously an aspect of... of uh, of, uh, of my mindset that says that's a good thing, that having that force check and balance would be a good thing. But um, but that, I just don't want to see really, really smart, really intuitive, and really hardworking people have to be distracted with some, some wing nut from some fan base pitching because their guy was fourth instead of third. You right. know what I mean? Like, it's just a hassle that a lot of people don't need. Well, that's well. So I'm already going to get that. I'm going to publish my. I'm going to publish my ballot, and all the comments are going to be, "See, you you don't understand the game because you'd rather have you'd rather give Crosby the heart than Bergeron, and Bergeron knows what it takes to win. We'll see what we'll see what Crosby wins in the postseason or something." I'm like, I'm not fucking saying that Sidney Crosby is going to win the Stanley Cup. I'm saying that he was the most valuable player to his team over the course of the 82 game regular season. Ugh, I'm already anticipating yeah, but, it. but that's, I mean, if you wanted to put Bergeron up, you could maybe make the argument that he is. I'm actually, you know like, what? It all, comes down to, it all comes down to the justification. Like, right. And that's why when, when I'm Puck Daddy, we put up our, our words picks like we were doing for the next two days before the puck drops in the playoffs. Like, we, we put the names and, you know, the top three for each, each writer, and then we put justification because I, I really think the thought process aspect of this is important. You know, it's not just simply putting down a name tell me why, you know, and, and, and the tell me why is as important as, as any name that you put down. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I know that there's a lot of concern from the, from the professional hockey writers association about losing the vote eventually if they get it wrong and stuff, but you know, that's fine. I, maybe it doesn't matter to fans that there's an independent group that picks these awards. Maybe they, they wouldn't care if it's just the NHL that picks them. It's the, the same people who dole out suspensions are the ones who sit around a table and drink beer and pick names out of the hat right. at the end of the season. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy that the writers do it. I think it makes the process fun. And, and I do think at the end of the day, you're, you are dealing with the single most tuned in and, and, uh, and uh, the, you know, insightful group that you could possibly have voting on the awards because we, this is our career. You know, we leave and read this stuff. Speaking of insight, this is my this is my plan for publishing my ballot. I actually thought about it maybe ten minutes before I came in here. It involves a whole lot of David Clarkson and a whole lot of those shrugging emoticons. You know those ones? <laughs> <laughs> like how awesome would that be if you had like heart one, David Clarkson shrug two, David Clarkson in parentheses. I'm confused. We have five votes. Can we vote for the same person five times? I, lo- I, I by the way, I love when David Clarkson gets shit on because as a Devils fan, I'm like. I'd take him back in a millisecond. Yeah. We knew, we knew how to use him. And he, and, and he got along with DeBoer. He had his best offensive season with DeBoer as his coach. And there was never an expectation that he was going to become Wendell Clark or, or right. Cam Neely or anything of that nature. And I think going to Toronto with that payroll, with that, with that paycheck, he just 
became the expectations changed about a a very nice complimentary player, and then he just got lost, and then and then it just was you know descended descended into a terrible season. Wasn't that the cover of the Toronto Sun on July sixth? It was wasn't it like Wendell Clark and David Wendell- Clarkson? Yeah, Wendell Clarkson might have been the oh. thing that they wrote, or or maybe that was his unofficial nickname. But the bottom line is, like, seriously, not but seriously, like, if they wanted to do the Ryan Clove for David Clarkson trade tomorrow, yeah, I'd pull the trigger on that ten times. I'd love David Clarkson back in New Jersey. Yeah, it's just that you know he would be there in, back in a place where the expectations are realistic versus in a place where uh, pay people can't read past the salary and, and B, don't think intangibles really matter and C, just aren't looking to destroy anybody who doesn't play up to expectations. Speaking of bad contracts, what has two thumbs will get paid $1 million a year more than Dennis Seidenberg for two more years and is probably in all seriousness a second or third pairing defenseman? Well, we assume he has two thumbs, and, and that one of them hasn't been shot off by a <laughs> right, kind of blocking shots. That's the thing about the Andrew McDonald contract that's so baffling is that like they're going to give him all this money to get attacked. But they haven't learned their lesson. Like you know, when 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 people were throwing money at Jay McKee and then he got hurt. Yeah. When people threw when the Devils gave that contract to Anton Volchenkov, who you know was a was the A train. You know, he hit pretty hard, but his his. Bread and butter was blocking shots, and, and lo and behold, what a shock! He's out of the lineup more than he plays because he was always hurt. Like the idea that you're going to give a six-year contract, and in the in the release you send out to the to the media about that contract, the thing you're crowing about is well, he he blocks a lot of shots, just like that's great. But and then you're like, and then they're like, well, and then he plays 20 minutes a night. I'm like, sure, that's great too, except he won't when he's eventually on the IR for blocking the shots. Right, right. It's yeah, they uh I it's it's fascinating. I mean the fetish that they have over there with like second pairing defensemen who as I said s- some of whom might be better served as third pairing defensemen, like they've just stockpiled them over the years and in the process have yet to put together like a really strong back end. And I've read I've read this argument about McDonald a few times today and I I find it hilarious. The argument of course being well, somebody would have given him the money. I'm like, yeah, you well, know, for once, money, Flyers stop being that do. team, right? Exactly. The, the Flyers are that team. The Flyers are the ones that give those guys the money. When you hear your team make that argument, well, if we didn't sign him to this ludicrous contract, somebody would have given him the money. Somebody is is it Snyder? That's who somebody right, is. Right, you're talking about the Flyers every time. Uh, awesome. Uh, so uh, I want to take a look at one other series, that being Montreal and Tampa. I'm wondering, what, how do you like this playoff format where in each series you know who you're playing against the next series? Well, I wrote about it on Puck Daddy today. I, I think the reason they did it is gambling. Like I, the, the, Ooh, the more I think call. about it and the more I see the word bracket showing up all over NHL.com, it's pretty obvious that, that they finally believe they've cracked the code on on getting people to wager on hockey, which is an impossibility in the U.S. because no one knows how to do it. Right. So the idea that they've simplified it, they've created a March Madness-type bracket for fans, I think has, has been the, the driving force behind this in many ways, that and, and the reestablishment of, of divisional rivalries, which is defined by me because I think both of those things kind of bring more fans under the tent. So maybe it works out. But I do hate the... What you're getting at is the thing that I hate, which is that I hate the 
the no reshuffling the deck to make sure that you protect your top seeds. I mean, the idea that the Boston Bruins get to play the Detroit Red Wings, and then their reward for beating the Red Wings is to play a team that has more points than either the Rangers, the Flyers, or the Blue Jackets, depending on who wins in the other division, is is ludicrous. It's stupid. It devalues what the Bruins were able to do in the regular season, because it doesn't matter if you secure a top seed in the conference. All that matters is that the other teams in your division um, you know, might be better than the other, the other teams that are still in the playoffs. So that's the aspect of it I don't like. Yeah, uh, I'm of the mind, as we look at that series, that one of these years, it doesn't need to be this year, doesn't even need to be next year, that with how hot and cold Carey Price can run, that one of these seasons he's just going to take him to the Stanley Cup Finals and and maybe win it. Uh, what's your view of the Habs entering the postseason this year? And, I mean, what's their ceiling in your mind? The, I mean, I, I, I think their their ceiling is the conference final, to be honest with you. I don't know if they have a cup run in them. Uh, they, it does scare me to think that you know they could play the Bruins from Bruins' aspect because they do seem to have the Bruins' number in some ways. And Price in that series, if he gets past this round, then, then you have the Terry Price story becomes one you start to worry about. Uh, but Tampa's a real tough out, and I, I, you know, I know Bishop's not going to play in Game One. I do wonder if they'll get him back in in this series. I, I'm not a Lindback fan per se, but I do think that the way this team played in front of Bishop when Stamkos was out was an indication. That just overall, the Lightning are a pretty good team. I, I get the feeling a lot of people are sort of overlooking them a little bit and thinking that with, with Bishop out, they're cooked. Uh, but they're, they're deep, and they're good, and they're really, really, really well coached. And, uh, and I think that uh, I, I think there's a better-than-good chance. I haven't, I haven't made a formal pick yet on that series, uh, per se, but I, I think there's a better-than-good chance that they're going to end up beating Montreal, and it'll be the Bruins and Tampa Bay in the next round. I'll get you out on this one. Like, how, how do you go about fathoming the idea that, that we might be living in a time where a guy tears his ACL and MCL in the middle of the season and is back playing again by the time it's all said and done? Because Dennis Seidenberg is just so far ahead in his, uh, in his rehab, and the team's downplaying it and downplaying it and saying that we're not counting on him coming back at any point, but... Man, I saw him skate today, and he looks to be at like 80% right now, and he's moving laterally. He's not making really hard cuts and stops yet, but, I mean, the Bruins legitimately could be looking at, if they get past uh, a couple rounds, suddenly having Dennis Seidenberg back on their back end. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the, well, the obvious answer is steroids, of course. No, I'm saying <laughs> it's not steroids. Although, you know, everybody's eventually we'll get around to that when it comes to players coming back from injury oh, yeah. pretty quickly because that's, you know, as we learned from baseball, one of the direct benefits of taking them. Uh, I don't think it's steroids with Dennis Seidenberg. I don't think it was steroids with Steven Stamkos or any player that came back real quickly. I just think that we've reached a point in, in, in training for these, for these athletes, conditioning for these athletes, that their, their bodies maybe simply just can, can heal quicker. Yeah. I mean, this is not a medical, I'm not a doctor. But the idea that these guys are in such amazing shape, that training is a year-round thing for them, and it's no longer like it was in the 1970s where training was maybe a month and then the rest of the year was drinking. Like, I have a feeling that these guys' bodies can absorb some of these injuries and they can bounce back from some of these injuries in ways that other athletes uh, in hockey history could not. So, um, you know, that combined with some guys just being able to be on the men quicker than others uh, is 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 the reason why it doesn't it doesn't shock me when guys come back from injury as quickly as they do. I mean, you know, in the, in the, in the, 
Well, let's put it this way. There's a guy on the Penguins who had a stroke. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he's playing this year. So, I mean, once that's established, really all bets are off. Right. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think that people will talk about maybe corners that peep, that players could be cutting to get back from injury. But I agree, and I think that's a bad look for back in the day when, you know, you have an ACL injury one calendar year, uh, or you come back one year, as Soup Nazi would say. But, like, with, with Seidenberg, when we saw him walking however many weeks later, and we saw him, like, doing some serious squats with the resistance band, I think that all of, like... It wasn't huge shock on our end. Like we just all shook our heads and we were like, "That that freaking guy," because he's such a like, he's such a machine. He like actually he looks like a machine. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I think that he's back. I, I'm guessing that he could be back. Like Eastern Conference Finals, Cup Finals. I'd be really surprised if they made a deep run and uh, and he didn't come back. Pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing to think that that could happen. But uh, but you know, it's. It's uh, it's the way of the world in 2014 with these athletes. It's remarkable how how well they can bounce back, and, and just more indication that I could never be one because I would just cry in a fetal position and 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 just binge watch like Friday Night Lights if I was injured rather I, than try to rehab and come back. I actually have a theory on that. So like people always like. I don't know what you hate most about hockey fans. I have a laundry list of what I hate about hockey fans. But up near the top is that whenever a player gets injured and comes back, hockey fans are like, yeah, he's a hockey player. He's tough. Like, he's tough as nails, and no other athletes are tough. Here's my theory. All of them are huge wimps. And, like, so, like, Johnny Boychuk, he'll, like, block a shot, get off the ice, come back. Like, he'll look like he's in excruciating pain. He'll come back on the ice. He'll get, like, slammed into the boards, and he'll look like he... Like, both of his shoulders are separated, and he'll be back on the ice the next shift. What if all these guys are just just have really low tolerances for pain, and that, like, those things wouldn't injure us, and they just are babies about it? I think that hockey really, fans are sleeping on that. It's completely possible, but, I mean, obviously what you're referencing is the, the Gregory Campbell and, and Rich Peverly are tough hockey players, and, and LeBron James is a, a oh. basketball player, and I know you hate that. Uh, I liked it for for the sole reason that it takes the piss out of the NBA and, and in some ways takes the piss out of LeBron. Um, but but I understand now that you know the error of my ways. I'm actually a gigantic racist. <laughs> uh, I, I was told that numerous times by numerous people, including my own writer Harrison Mooney. Uh, that, that that's not endorse, good. Harrison Mooney is a black man. This is true. Yes, if you in, if you endorse the the NHL guys are tough and NBA guys are not. Uh, meme, then you are you might as well just be you just strap on the white hood and get on the horse and find the cross burning in your town because you are you are king racist. Well, that yeah. is a huge weight off my shoulders because I hate that line of thinking. I ju- I said it before racism <laughs> was even brought up. I despise something about me despises that line of thinking. So, so that you, just, you 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 DJ are are a friend of the black. Man. It shows uh, how purely non racist I am. Racist like me, uh, you clear you clear you are yeah you 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 might as well just. Uh, you know, give Al Sharpton a hug next time you see him, Are you... and uh, and look for the wire. But then also give him a hug and and just tell him that uh, that that you're 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 on you're on the side of light. Whilst uh, Greg Wyshynski is a raging, uh, uh, just ingrained racist. Well, that's embracing that meme. If I saw Al Sharpton, like, what the hell do you think I would do? Like, of of course I would I would hug that guy so tight. He's hilarious. <laughs> Have you not seen what is it, uh, Mister Deeds? For goodness sake, let's eat some cake. Guy's unbelievable. Hilarious. 
I would I would try to I try to angle him so we're standing near like an alley with a wind tunnel, just to see what the hair does, <laughs> just to see what happens there. If there's any movement. That'd be awesome. Like, oh, Reverend Sharpton, it's so nice to meet you. I'm just gonna hug you and bring you this way. Here, here, Reverend Sharpton. Stand here in the doorway of of the old Giant Stadium, and and I'm gonna open up the other door on the other side, and and just we'll see what happens with your hair. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, this has been fun, dude. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm gonna see you in the the postseason at some point. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I usually hang local for the first couple rounds, and then start heading out and about when we get to the conference final and obviously covering the, the full Stanley Cup final for Buck Daddy. But uh, first couple of rounds, more, I think it's more of a television experience. You have so many games going on at the same time, running chats, doing doing posts, the whole thing. It's, it's more more beneficial, I think, to sometimes just uh, pop in front of the boob tube and have the shared experience. But then once the, the series are set and, uh, and you know where you're going, then it's uh, better to be on the ground for that, that whole experience. So... We'll definitely see each other because I, I have the Bruins coming out of the East. So uh, hopefully that means more copious amounts of time and money and and uh, and, uh, and and liver enzymes spent in the great city of Boston. So you know what sucks though the uh, the media party if so if the Bruins reach the Cup final the media party would be in Boston because it's at the top seeded team and mm-hmm. I would rather that be on the road than in Boston. No, I feel you on that. A bit, a bit, and and like you, you're you're speaking to my problem with the draft the last two years, which is that you know in my in my time covering the draft and going to the draft, I've been to L.A., I've been to Minneapolis, I've been to Canada a few times. Like I've been to some real solid places to cover the draft, which is essentially the last day of school, so everybody has a lot of fun there. Right. Um, the last two drafts, this this one and, and the previous one, have been in New Jersey and now Philadelphia. And as a kid who grew up in New Jersey, that's like that's like having, you know, your senior prom at the Seven Eleven. It's oh. like it just who who cares? It's like send me to to parts unknown. Don't don't have me. Don't put me someplace I can drive to. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like some of these destinations. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, like I'll feel so lame leaving the media party and like going home. Right. Exactly. Like in Chicago, at least it's like, oh, things are open until three weeks from now. Let's, right. yeah. Uh, yeah. Here's a place I've never been versus a place that I've always been. It's a, although, and then of course, you know, the depressing thing about having the draft in New Jersey is that all the draft stuff was in New York. So right. Like we can't even offer anything to you people. You have to go to the other gooder place. <laughs> have fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. Thanks for doing this. Uh, that is Greg Wyshynski. From Puck Daddy and the Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast. Check him out on Twitter. That is his handle, is his name. So you can do that. And uh, this has been Podman Rush. We will talk to you next round. Thanks, dude. Anytime, man. It was good to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Have a good one. Take care. Later.